from the time I was a, uh, a teenager, 14, okay, I would go and sit in big church. Y'all, y'all ever been to big church? We, we would go sit in big church and we would hear a sermon. So that means from the time I was 14 till now, okay, I'm 31 just in case you want to know. That means for 52 weeks out of the year, I heard at least one sermon, okay? That's a lot of sermons. If you, if you go and just think about that, from the time I was 14 till now, 52 weeks out of each of those years, I was hearing at least one sermon. Now, let's add to that because I was also in youth group, right? Anybody else grew up in youth group? Okay, so, so that's an additional sermon from the time I was 14 till 19 or 18 when you get out of youth group, right? Okay, so that's at least two sermons during that time period. Okay, in addition, uh, I've been preaching now for about nine years, almost 10 years, uh, and as a preacher, I like to study my craft. Uh, so for me, I'm an auditory learner. I, I like to, to listen to sermons, which helps me. So each week, I listen to anywhere from five to 10 sermons every week. Okay, so now we're adding up those numbers. Now, let's also think about, I'm going somewhere with this, I promise. Um, let's also think about all of the conferences, Christian conferences, who's been to a Christian conference? Okay, now, you've heard a lot of sermons for that. Now, this week, I did a little bit of math. Here is my rough estimation of how many sermons I have heard in my lifetime. 4,524 sermons. Okay, that, that's, that's what I totaled up. And that's, that's, again, that's a rough estimation. I'm not exactly sure. I know I have heard a bunch of sermons. I've listened to a ton. In addition, I have also studied sermons, uh, transcripts from different denominations, Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians. I've read transcripts and studied those type sermons. I've listened to sermons from different ethnicities, white preachers, black preachers, Latino preachers, different time periods in the church from the apostles, the early church fathers to the preachers of the Reformation and modern day. I have heard, read a lot of sermons. Now you're thinking, wow, that's very interesting, pastor. Thank you for telling me. I will add that to a list of useless facts that I have rolling around in my brain. (laughs) Now, I say all of that to say that out of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sermons that I have heard, I have never heard a sermon on Ehud, the left-handed assassin, and Eglon, the big fat king. (laughs) Never. Not one. Okay, until this week. Until this week, when I went to go do my research on this, I, I had to dig and find and research and research to find some guys who have actually preached on this text, and I got to listen to some of this. So who, just by a show of hands, how many of you did not even know this passage was in the Bible? You can be honest. This is church. You can't lie. Okay, now, how many of you, by a show of hands, have never heard a sermon preached on this text? Okay, see, we're doing good. We're good because you guys have never heard one. I never preached one. So if it goes terrible, nobody will know. (laughs) Um, This week, I also reached out to uh, some of our more seasoned saints. Okay, you you guys know who you are. Um, The older, see, I said older, not old. It's a very clear distinction. Some of our older saints in the church and said, hey, have you guys ever heard this? And all of them came back and said, no, we've never, ever uh, heard this text uh, preached before. So I'm really, really excited. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a funny story, okay? It's, it's written with humor in, in the intent. Now, that's not the only, it's not the all of it. It's not just a funny story. It's also teaching us something about who God is. And, and, and here's, here's the hard thing that I have to do this week is I have to show how this points us to Christ. 
Okay, so is it humorous? Yes. Uh, is there some bathroom humor? Absolutely. <laughs> but, okay, but it's also teaching us um, about who God is, and it's going to point us to Christ today. It's going to show us this unlikely Savior, and it's going to point us to the unlikely Savior who came and died on the cross in our place for our sins. Amen? So that's what we're going to see today. Now, let me recap if you were not here with us last week. Last week, we began preaching through the book of Judges, okay? This is what is great about uh, preaching through a book like this is when you come upon text like this, uh, you really can't skip them because we're preaching straight through the book, okay? So I, so I can't go, oh, this one talks about stuff we don't want to talk about, so let's just skip it. We can't do that. We've got to preach it, so we find ourselves here. But here is what we learned uh, in the first two and a half chapters of Judges. We saw that there is a cycle to the book of Judges, and here is what we said the cycle was. Number one, the people stop being devoted to God, and by so doing are devoted to other gods. God has set out to love a people, save a people, serve a people, and what we see in the book of Judges is that that people then abandons God, and they begin to serve other false gods. God had told them not to be uh, in covenant with or in close, tight relationship with the pagan people of the promised land, but they did not drive those people out. As a matter of fact, they lived with them, intermarried with them, and therefore, they begin to worship pagan gods, okay? So they began not to be devoted to God and devoted to other gods. Number two, God disciplined them by allowing other nations to attack and oppress them. God, in a loving act of grace and mercy, raises up other nations to come in and oppress them as a form of loving discipline to his children. Number three, the people cry out to God in their time of distress, and God sends a savior, deliverer, or judge to rescue his people. Number four, eventually that judge would die and the process would repeat. That's the book of Judges. This is a downward spiral that never resolves itself. It just keeps getting worse. Here's the way one great theologian put it. He said, you can sum up the book of Judges in this. Relapse, retribution, repentance, and rescue. That's the cycle of the book of Judges. The book of Judges begins this way. In that day, there was no king in the land, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. You know how the book of Judges ends? And in that day... There was no king, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. This is a picture to us of hard-headed people who, who just keep running away from the Lord. This is a picture of us. This is a picture of us, okay? So what we saw last week, if you remember, we were introduced to the first judge. Remember his name? Anybody? right there in your Bible, Othniel. That was the first judge that we were introduced to, and he defeated uh, Kushan, Rishathaim, uh, this very evil guy. And there was peace in the land, it says there, for 40 years. Let's take a look at verse 12. We're at chapter 3, verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. And the people, again, okay, so if I am the writer, okay, I am there, I'm writing down Jewish history, I would leave this part out, wouldn't you? And again, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Just, just let's forget this whole book ever happened. Let's skip to the Jesus part, right? He shows up, he does some really cool stuff. Why is this included in here? Well, it's here to remind us and show us 
and teach us a very good lesson about who God is. Now, here's a really interesting fact. Look back at verse 12 again. The Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab. The Lord strengthened him. That, that's, that's who raised this guy up. The Lord did, okay? Now, here's the thing about God. God is sovereign, meaning God is in control of everything, everywhere, for all time. Sovereign. We believe in the sovereignty of God. God is powerful. God is big. God is strong. There is never a moment where God is wringing his hands, not knowing what to do next. God is never out of control. God is always in control. And God can show up in human history and do whatever it is that he wants. He can show up in human history and carry out his will. As a matter of fact, think about Jesus. That is God himself showing up in human history to carry out what only he could do, which was live a perfect life and die the death that we should have died on the cross. God can step into history himself and carry those things out. But nine times out of 10, here's what God wants to do and likes to do. He likes to use human agents. God prefers to use human agents to carry out his will. So why at at this church we believe in the sovereignty of God, meaning God is in control of everything everywhere, we don't sit around on our hands saying, well, uh, if God wants to do something, he's sovereign, he'll do it. We believe, no, God is sovereign and not only has God predestined what will be, he has also predestined the method, how it will come about, which is human agents. So we don't say, well, God's sovereign. If he wants people saved, he'll save them. We say God is sovereign and he will save and God chooses, calls us as his children to preach his gospel. So, So yeah, we preach the gospel to people who are lost, hoping God will save them. Okay, so here God is raising up this guy to carry out his will. Now, what is also very concerning is that he doesn't raise up Moab, Eglon, the king of Moab, to set the people of Israel free. He raises up Eglon, the king of Moab, to oppress and enslave his people. Now, is that concerning to anyone else? Doesn't that sound like God is evil? It does to me a little bit, doesn't it you? When you? I mean, just read it. You go, he raised them up to oppress his people and enslave his people. That does not sound like a very loving God. Well, friend, by doing that, that was the most loving thing God could have done. Here is why. To leave Israel in their sin, that would have been evil. That would have been mean. But what he does, because he loves his children so much, he disciplines them. And his form of discipline was raising up Eglon and the Moabites to, to oppress them. In the same way, listen, parents, if, if you're in the room, parents, the most loving thing you can do to your children is discipline them is call them to obedience, not just let them get away with murder, lighting off bottle rockets in the house and and doing backflips, right, off of the couch. We, We call our children to discipline, not because we just want to be mean and hard and you better do what I say because I'm the parent and I'm right, but it is a call to obedience out of love. Come on, guys, you know this text, Proverbs 13, 24. Whoever spares the rod... Okay, that's the saying, right? But look at this verse. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. That's what the text says. 
Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but whoever loves him is diligent to discipline. Okay? Now, again, that's how I always heard that. That's the, the proverb, isn't it? They just spare the rod, spoil the child. You know, but sometimes when we think of spoiled, we can kind of downplay that word. You know, what, what do grandparents do with their grandchildren? Oh, we spoil them. You know, you just, what did, what did daddies do with their little daughters? You take them shopping and you just spoil them. It's a, it's a cutesy little thing, isn't it? But here in this text, that pulls us away from that word spoiled and shows us what the word of God really says, which is, if you do not discipline your children, it is hatred towards them. And so God, what he is doing here, he's not being evil, he's not being mean, uh, he, he, he's not being cruel. God, in this great act of love, he loves his children. He, it looks, listen, if you're here today and you're God's child, he loves you and he loves you so much that he will discipline you. And so what he does here is he loves his children so much that he disciplines them. And he raises up these people, okay, the Moabites, right? Moabites, okay? Uh, if you were here last week, we met a lot of ites. Uh, we met the Canaanites, uh, the Jebusites, the Perizzites, uh, a lot of ites, but we did not meet any Moabites. So where did these guys come from? The reason we did not meet them is because they are not from the promised land. They come from somewhere else. And so they're kind of an unexpected enemy. You read that and you go, where did these guys come from? I mean, why wouldn't they be fighting with the people who are in the land? Why are they fighting with these guys? These guys just kind of came out of nowhere, it seems. And in addition, in Exodus and in Numbers, here's what we read about the Moabites. They were scared to death of the Israelites. Why were they scared to death of them? Well, because the Israelites, God had allowed them to strut out of Egypt, no problem. The, the most mighty nation in the entire world had the Israelites in captivity and the Israelites just strutted right out. No problem at all. And so because of that, the Moabites were scared to death of them and, and didn't want anything to do with them. But now all of a sudden, what we see is they get raised up and here they are uh, to oppress them. Here in the opening verses of this section, we begin to see the unusual way God often works. Listen to this. When it comes to how God works, expect the unexpected. When it comes to the how, how is God going to work? How is God going to see this through? I know God has promised me these things. Listen, the Bible is full of God's promises. And so oftentimes we get locked in on how God is going to fulfill his promises when we cannot insist to God how he will fulfill his promises. He's the promise keeper. He's going to fulfill those promises however he wants to. I'm preaching today. Y'all with me? Yeah. <clears throat> That's what God does. He is a promise keeper. He will do what he said he's going to do. But oftentimes we get mired down in the fact that I know the right plan for you, God. Now, I know nobody in here has ever said that. I know the right plan for you, God. I know what you should do. I know how you can fix my marriage. I know how you can fix my work situation, God. And if you would just do what I say that you should do, then everything will be fixed and perfect. Here's my plan. Get it done. Now, I know that's just me. Nobody else in here. But this is where the human heart tends. It's pride. It's believing we know better than him. It's believing our ways are better than his ways. It's believing our plans are higher than his plans. This is the tendency of the sinful 
human heart. Now, uh, let's keep reading and uh, go back to verse 12 again. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered himself uh, the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and they went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Jerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Okay? These people come in, they take possession of the city of Palms. Why is that significant? Well, when the Israelites came into that land, the very first city that they took, okay, was Jericho or the city of Palms. What's that showing? It's showing that they're right back to where they started. Okay, the people of Israel are right back to where they started and worse. So they took over the city of Palms and they served him for 18 years under his slavery before they called out to the Lord. Now, quick quiz from last week. How many years were they under the rule of Kushan? Anybody remember? Eight. Here it's 18, which means it's taking longer for them to call out to the Lord, which means that sin, okay, creates calluses on our hearts. Now, for the men in the room who struggle with pornography, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for you? It means that you view it, you feel bad. You feel, this was, I should not have done that. God has not created sex to be manipulated and used that way. We remove ourselves from it, and then we go back to it, and we don't feel as guilty, and then we go back to it again and again and again, and by the end of it, it is normal because sin has created that callous. Men, as you mistreat your wife, and you feel, well, I shouldn't have spoke to her that way, and then you do it again, and then you do it again, and then you do it again. And sin has a way of creating a callus on our heart and becoming just normal. And this is exactly what happened with the people of Israel. They had worshiped other gods, worshiped other gods. Maybe the first few times they felt guilty about, it. we shouldn't be worshiping these gods. We shouldn't be intermarrying with these people who don't worship Yahweh. We shouldn't. And then by the end of it, hey, it's Tuesday. It's pagan worship day. Here we go. So they served him for 18 years, okay? Then the Lord raised up a deliverer. Okay, here we go, finally, here we are. The Lord is going to raise up a deliverer because they called out for his help. Now, is this deliverer gonna be mighty and strong? Uh, he's probably tall, dark, handsome, uh, very muscular. Uh, he likes puppies and kids and uh, you can take him home to mama, right? That's the deliverer. And the Lord raised up a deliverer, Ehud, a Benjamite, a left-handed man. Okay, now, uh, if, uh, if you uh, were um, a, a Hebrew people, uh, that would have been where the rim shot would have gone and everyone would have laughed. Okay, but up, boom, <laughs> right? That's, th this is a Hebrew funny Benjamin or a Benjamite, what that means is son of my right hand. That's what Benjamin means. This guy is left handed. Okay, let's say, okay, just stick with me. Let's say a guy walks in the door and he is uh, four foot three. 
and we say, how's the weather up there, Jolly Green? That, that's, that's the joke, right? It's, it's irony. Let, let's say a guy walks in and, and he's like 100 pounds soaking wet, couldn't fight his way out of a wet paper bag, like me. Um, and we say to that guy, uh, you still benching 500 Hercules? That, that's the joke here. The, the Benjamite, son of my right hand. And he's left-handed. <laughs> that's the deliverer. He, he, he's not tall, dark, handsome, muscular, uh, well-spoken, you know, uh, again, likes kids and puppies, the guy you take home to mom. He, he's the butt of the joke. He's the son of my right hand who's actually left-handed. That's the joke. Now, when it says that he's left-handed, here's what that actually means. If you translate it literally, it means bound in his right hand. So what many of the commentators believe is that his, his right hand was actually deformed or withered or maybe he had hurt it in an accident and it's not that just he's left hand predominant like maybe some of you are, but actually that his right, he was unable to use his right arm. So what great military mighty leader can't use his right arm to wield the sword and lead the troops into battle, right? I mean... This is not the right guy, God. You, you got the wrong guy. Find a guy with a strong right hand who can wield a sword, who's eight foot tall, you know, and just rippling muscles, and he can lead the, the, the fight against the Moabites. That, that's, who, that's who you're looking for, God. I mean, what, what's the deal? In addition, what are the continual references to God's right hand in the Scripture? You guys read some of the scripture? Okay, when it talks about God's right hand, it talks about him destroying his enemies by his right hand. It talks about God blessing his people with his right hand. It talks about him delivering those in distress with his right hand. He saves, God saves nations with his right hand and this deliverer is left-handed. Now, don't run to the end of the story, which often happens when we know what the end of the story is. Just pretend all that you know is this guy's left-handed. You would think, God, why are you using him? Find a good warrior, someone who can actually swing a sword. Come on, God, can't you make a better plan than this? Here at the outset of the story, the reader who does not know the end is forced to trust God's promises, which means trusting him with the how he will fulfill his promises to save. We're forced to trust God in the how. Not just that he will save, but trusting God in his step-by-step -step plan to save. I just want to read, this guy says it way better than me, I'll let him say it. This is a great little commentary, it's called The Message of Judges. Uh, if you're going to be going through this study with us, I recommend you getting it. Here's what uh, Michael Wilcox says, he, he says this, the Lord says to his people, this is what I intend for you to do. And this is how you perhaps expect me to do it. Now you may pin me down on the ultimate object because that I have promised, but you will also want to pin me down as to the method because you love things to be manageable and predictable. <laughs> Anybody else love things to be manageable and predictable? 
So watch me alter the how in one place and adjust it in another place and find a totally different means in a third place until the only fact you can rely on is my guarantee that I will do what I have promised. That's what the Lord says. And that's what we begin to see in the outset uh, of this great story. The truth is we are all totally out of control and God is in control, okay? Verse 16 through 22, I am merely going to read this. If you have a weak stomach, it's in the Bible. Here we go. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent the people away who carried it. And he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat and Ehud reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade so that the fat closed over the blade for he did not pull the sword out of his belly and the dung came out. So he goes and makes a sword. Uh, It's a cubit. It's 18 inches ish. Now, uh, probably didn't have the crossbar thing, probably just like a long blade, like a, uh, like a shiv, like a prison shank. You know what I mean? Just, just like a long piece of metal with maybe like something tied around the, the bottom part of it so that he could grab it. And he attaches it to his right thigh. Well, that's interesting. If he's left-handed, why wouldn't he put it on his left thigh? Well, because it's hard to draw that way. So he puts it on his, with his left hand so that he can draw it Quickly, he conceals this weapon uh, and puts it that way so that he can draw it. And there we see him taking a tribute. I volunteer his tribute. What tribute (laughs) are we talking about here? Not that type of Hunger Games tribute. All throughout the book of Leviticus, this word is used to describe grain that is given to the Lord. So this is an offering. They're they're bringing an offering because they are now a conquered people. Um, And what would happen is they they were taking that offering grain when they were being obedient to the Lord. They were taking that tribute and giving it to the Lord. But now because they're enslaved, that grain tribute that was supposed to go uh, to God is now going to the king of Moab and all his buddies. And what they're doing is consuming that grain and what? Getting fat. They're getting fat off of what was supposed to go to God. Listen to this very carefully. This is what every other king will do to you. They will take what belongs to God, get fat on it, and give you nothing but slavery in return. Every single person in this room serves a king. Did, did you hear as we were singing and, and, and as some of the guys were talking, we referred to Jesus as who? As king, King Jesus. The truth is every single person in this room either serves King Jesus or you serve another king, even if that king is yourself. 
Some of us serve the king of comfort. Some of us serve the, the king of success. Some of us serve the, the, the king of family. We all have kings that we serve. Everybody serves a king. And the truth is every single king other than Jesus does this. They take what belongs to God, they get fat on it, and what they give back to you is slavery. So if your king is success, guess what? All of your time, energy, effort, your whole life, you're going to give over to your career and your career is just going to take it and take it and take it and get fat on it while it enslaves you, enslaves you, enslaves you. Jesus Christ is the only king that when we turn ourselves over to him, he doesn't enslave us. He sets us free. Did anybody come in here in bondage this morning? Bound up in sin. You just can't quit doing it. You can't stop. You just can't see a way out. There's no road for you. Is that how you feel this morning? Guess what? If you make Jesus your king, if you turn your life over to Jesus as king, he says, I'll set you free. If the son sets you free, you will be free. Indeed. So these people are enslaved by this king who keeps taking and taking and taking. And the only thing that he gives them is slavery in return. Here's my question to you this morning. Are you giving to Eglon what belongs to the Lord Here's another way to ask that question. What is the most important thing in your life? Answer that question in, in your heart and your minds this morning. And be honest with you. You don't have to say it out loud, okay? That way you can be honest with yourself. Be honest with yourself. What is the most important thing for you? Is it that you're comfortable? That your family's comfortable? That you have a nice car, have a nice house? I just want to be successful. I, I, I just want my kids to be moral. All right, what is the most important thing for you? If it's anything other than devotion to Christ, you're bowing down to Eglon. Now, Ehud here goes and takes this grain tribute uh, to the king Okay, why is he chosen? Why Ehud? Why does he go take the grain offering? This is a very interesting thought, okay? Well, Ehud is seen as a diplomat and not a deliverer warrior. The tribute is delivered by Ehud's hand, his left hand, meaning his right hand is disabled. The Moabites don't expect any trouble from this guy. He's a cripple, right? He... He can't, if he can't swing a sword with his right hand, surely he can't swing one with his left hand. So he's chosen not as warrior deliverer. He's chosen as diplomat. He's chosen because he, he's disabled. And so he is seen as submissively bringing tribute to the king, not walking in, kicking in the door, ready to fight. That's why he is chosen. In addition, the people of Israel do not see him as warrior, deliverer, king. The people of Israel only see him as the delivery boy, okay? So at this point in the story, we're thinking this, God can't work through this guy. Just like many people in this room may be thinking this, God can't be working in my marriage, it's too painful, God can't be working at my job. It's too monotonous. God can't be working in my financial situation. There's not much there to work with. The problem is when we let circumstances dictate to God how or even if he can work to bring about good. 
Anybody else do that? Anybody else look at circumstances? Anybody else see how things are going in your life and you look at that and you go, there's no way he can work in this. There's no way that this situation is ever gonna be turned around for good. It's impossible. When the doctor says it's cancer, that's bad. Period, paragraph. God can't take that and work it for good. When we have to bank, go into bankruptcy, God can't work that for good. There's no way. It's impossible. You ever feel that way? The people in the story feel this way at this time. They're looking at this guy. I mean, he can't lead. He can't swing a sword. I mean, he, he's the delivery boy. He's not the deliverer. And then it says that he delivers the tribute to the king and that Eglon was a very fat man. Again, we need a rim shot, but don't boom. Eglon means little tiny calf. And he is the big fat king. So he goes to the little tiny calf who's actually the big fat king to deliver the tribute. Now, this isn't, okay, listen, this is not a, a punch against my big bone people, okay? What this is showing is that this guy has been exploiting the people of Israel and getting fat off of what should have gone to God. This isn't just mere pun or just a punch against this guy. This isn't just a backyard kind of schoolroom poking fun. It is showing that he has exploited the people of Israel and getting fat off of the grain. Now, Ehud says something to him. Now, he goes, they deliver the tribute. Then he and all his people, they're on their way back. They get to this place called Gilgal, which is where they had originally built a monument to the Lord, but now there's all these pagan idols there. He gets to that place and he sends the rest of the people on and he turns back and goes back to the king and says, I have a message for you. I have a message. Now that word message in Hebrew can mean a message or it can mean a thing. Okay, I, I got something for you, king. It's a secret. It, it, it's a message, it's a, uh, it's a very pointed message <laughs> that I have for you, O king, and I need to talk with you, okay? So that's what he tells him. This king entertains him, and they send all the attendants away. They send away the guards that are protecting the king? I, I mean, doesn't he need some type of security? Not against the cripple guy, right? So all the attendants go on their smoke break, and there they are, in the cool roof chamber. Now, highly debated, uh, let me just say what we know, okay? Uh, cool roof chambers in those days were a, a room built high in the palace so that the desert winds would kind of push over that cool roof chamber and it would keep it cool because the wind was hitting it. That's cool roof chamber. Now you got it. Now, um, some people say this is the royal bathroom, and we'll, we'll get to why in a second. Here's what we do know. We do know that likely this is where he would have went. So this is possibly a room with the bathroom attached to it. So like your master bedroom generally has a bathroom attached. This is probably something like that. We're not sure, but we make sense that he would take care of what he needed to take care of in there, okay? Now, moving along. Before I say something that will get me in trouble. Here we go. Now, all of the attendants left. There he is. Um, he's, again, apparently in the royal restroom. And he says, I have a message for you. And the king stands up. Again, where he was sitting, we're not sure. Was he sitting? We don't know where he was sitting. 
But he stands up ready to receive the message and he takes his good left hand and he reaches and he draws out that sword and he stabs it into his belly and he stabs it so hard that the sword itself actually disappears and it says that the fat closes up around it. Now, at this point, we're going... TMI, okay? We don't, we don't need to know all that. That is gross. It seems like that the writer here is just being gratuitously violent, you know, like Hollywood movies that we see. I mean, it's like, how many ways can you really kill a zombie? Well, let's find out, you know? Um, this, but this is not that. This isn't just being gratuitous in violence and, and gore and bathroom humor, gross stuff. This is Old Testament judgment. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. If King Eglon lived by his belly, he dies by his belly. And the sword becomes God's righteous right judgment and it is stabbed into his belly, receiving into himself his judgment and the fat closes over it, sealing that as right judgment. So the king gets what he deserves. And apparently... The blow was so severe that he lost control of his bodily functions and the dung came out is what the text says, okay? Now, what we see is a king who was humiliating God's people. His end is now incredibly humiliating. Verse 23 through 25. <laughs> Then Ehud went into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool roof chamber. What did I say, through 25? Okay. Uh, and they waited till uh, he, they were embarrassed, but still they did not open the doors of the cool roof chamber. They took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Okay. He dies. Again, the, the guys are off on their coffee break. That is used as his time to escape. He escapes. The guys come back. And again, because of what happened to the king and he couldn't control functions, so they get there to the cool roof chamber and they use their noses to determine the king is taking care of business. Let's leave him alone. Uh, but they stand out there and they stand out there Okay, can you imagine that conversation? You go in. Uh-uh, you go in. Right? I'm not going in on your life, buddy. You go in. Okay? So one unlucky guy loses paper, rock, scissors, and, and he has to go in, and there they find the king laying dead, and all the while, God has taken this situation to where he should have been captured. I mean, he should have been captured, but God took an unlikely person in an unlikely situation and used it to set this guy free so that he could escape to set the nation free. Let's take a look at what happens next in 26 through 30. Ehud escaped while they delayed and passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim and the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country as... Uh, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down 
with him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the land had rest for 80 years. He was their leader. Who ever heard of a military leader without the use of his primary fighting arm? Come on, we need somebody capable, somebody who can lead us into battle. Again, don't insist on how God must work. Just trust that he will and that he is. When it comes to how God will work, all that you can expect from God is the unexpected. God is the great judge. He is the great deliverer. So how he judges and how he delivers is up to him. Okay, now, what are we to make of such a story? (laughs) I mean, this, I mean, there's, big fat king and an assassin and there's excrement. I mean, what do we, what do we do with this story? Okay. See, see now some of you know where I'm headed with this and you're thinking, how's he going to tie this one to Jesus? Right. You know, cause yeah, that's where I got to go. You guys know, I love Jesus. We are a church that preaches Jesus. So now I've got to get from, you know, the left-handed assassin, and big fat king Eglon to Jesus. How are you going to do that one? Well, Ehud gets us ready to see an unlikely savior. Ehud is the unlikely savior who points to an unlikely savior. Okay, listen to this. Why did first century Jews have such a hard time believing that Jesus was the Messiah? Because they thought there's no way God can use this guy. I mean, he doesn't look very smart. I mean, he's from the mountains, like he's a hillbilly. I mean, God can't use this guy, can he? Isaiah 53, two through three, listen to this. For he, that is Jesus, grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And so was Ehud right? Nobody cared about him. People looked down on him because he was crippled. God must hate him. That's why he lost the use of his right hand, that they didn't care anything about him. Listen to these three things. One, both Ehud and Jesus single-handedly achieved the victory for their people. Ehud goes to Gilgal. He sends all these people back, and he goes by himself back to defeat that king, just as Jesus by himself hangs on the cross and defeats Satan, sin, and death. Number two, both defeat their foe not by power and might, but by weakness. It is Ehud's weakness that allows him to be where he was in front of the king by himself alone. It was his weakness with his weak hand that he drew that sword and thrust it into Eglon's belly. It was in weakness and meekness that Jesus came. He came riding on a donkey's colt, not on a big stallion. He came as weak. He came as meek. And there as a lamb led to the slaughter, he goes in weakness to the cross and shows great great weakness as he bleeds and dies a terrible death, but it was that death that secured our victory. Number three, the difference between the two. Ehud killed to set the Israelite people free from bondage, and Jesus dies to set us free from bondage. Okay, Um, I will, I'll close with this. 
Truth be told, I am not as smart as I think I am. And half the people in the audience said, amen. That's just the reality. My plans are not as crafty as I assume. I don't have as much figured out as I think I do. I have way less control over my circumstances than I could ever imagine. That's the truth. But I often forget those things. So I think I'm smarter than I really am. I think my plans are best. I think I have it all figured out and I'm in control. The result of believing those fairy tales is I tell God how he should work in my life. And I insist he do it that way. I think things like, God, the best thing for you to do is to follow my plan and do what I tell you to do because I know what is best. Now, Like I said, that's probably nobody else in here, but let me ask you a few questions to see if maybe you are in the same boat as me, insisting on the how. Let me ask you these questions. Number one, are you continually frustrated at your circumstances? Are you continually frustrated at your circumstances? You're frustrated at your job. You're frustrated at your finances. You're frustrated with your marriage. You're frustrated at your kids. Just constantly frustrated. Could that be that God is working the how very differently than your plan? And that's why you're frustrated. (laughs) Right? Am I stepping on anybody else's toes? Okay? You're frustrated because you're going, God, you're not supposed to do it this way. And he goes, my way's better than yours. Let me do it this way. I'm working this for good. I promise. Just trust me. Just trust me. I'm working this out for good. It's just you don't like how I'm working it out. And so, so oftentimes we're just constantly frustrated. We're frustrated because we're not trusting God with the how. Number two, do you lack consistency in prayer? Do you lack consistency? You just, sometimes you pray, sometimes you don't. You you don't have a consistent prayer life. Well, might that be because last time you prayed, you told God exactly how to get things done He didn't do that. Therefore, you don't think prayer is very valuable. So you don't do it. Again, not trusting him with the how. God, I told you how when I prayed last week. I I told you this is how to get this done when I prayed and then you didn't do it that way. And so here I still am in the same situation. My prayers have gone unheard, unanswered. Why bother praying? That is pride. And it's not trusting God with the how. Number three, last question. Do you have a fixation on the past? Constantly thinking about the what ifs. If only this had happened. If only he had never left me. If only she had never left me. If only I had been promoted in that company instead of fired. What if, what if, what if. Constantly thinking about the past and thinking about if these details would have changed, where would I be today? Right? This, this is the Uncle Rico syndrome. You guys seen Napoleon Dynamite, right? Yeah. He, he's constantly saying, man, back in 82, you know, if, I'd only, if the coach had only put me in the game, then I would have I led the team to state and I would have gone pro and everything would be different. Right? That's the Uncle Rico syndrome. And, and so many times we get caught up in thinking about the what ifs. What if this had happened? What if this happened? Well, it didn't happen that way. And and that means that God has a different method of bringing about his promises. You can trust that he is going to fulfill his promises. Just know that the how is up to him. Trust him with the how. 
Trust that God will work and is working to bring about your good. Let go of your pride. His way is better than your way. It may be unusual, it may be unsuspecting, but his plan is better than yours. Preach to yourself day by day that God can bring about good even if we don't understand the how. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this great and funny story that teaches us so much about you and who you are and what you've done, that you've sent an unlikely savior, that is Jesus Christ. He came in weakness. He emptied himself and came here as a man. He was fully God and also uh, fully man. He came and he suffered death on a cross uh, and he is an unlikely savior. He, he wasn't rich. He, um, he didn't come from a place of prominence. Um, he came from a little poor town and he was a regular day-by-day worker. Yet in this man who was an unlikely savior, uh, he procured the salvation of his people. And so God, we are here today uh, just thanking you for sending the unlikely savior. Uh, Father, I pray for the people in the room who are ridden with anxiety this morning. Father, would you let their view of your sovereignty rise and let their anxiety fall? Father, would you show us that you're in control? You're in control of the how. You will fulfill your promises. And so, Father, I pray now for a mighty move of the Holy Spirit to sweep over this room, to let people leave without being ridden with anxiety, without worry, without stress, but full trust, hope in you. We pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus, amen.